Statins versus sulfur for the prevention of heart disease. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. So the winner of the Q&A submission contest was a question that came from John Needham. And I would summarize John's question as statins versus sulfur for heart disease. And it really is more like several questions, one of which is how safe and effective are statins and then how safe and effective is sulfur for the prevention of heart disease. And John gave some background where he links to a study that came out of Peter Langjoen's group. I don't, I don't know if it, if if Langjoen was the, um, he was like the second or third author, but he was the one that I knew that I knew most out of it. That basically argues that statins could be causative in coronary artery calcification and actually increase heart disease deaths as a result of being toxic to the mitochondria and increasing calcification of the arteries. And then John also linked to a a second paper that was actually referenced in that first paper. I heard some feedback. I don't I don't think it's me. All right. John also li- linked to a uh, a second paper that was part of that was referenced in that first paper that was an observational study showing more calcification among people who are using statins. And then an analysis on the nnt.com or the number needed to treat.com that basically argued that a lot of people need to take a statin in order to prevent any heart disease deaths and they don't look so hot from a side effect perspective where you actually have a much smaller number needed to cause a side effect than to uh, actually save someone from heart disease. So there's that. And then the second part of his question, he refers to an experiment done by Lester Morrison that dramatically lowered the risk of heart disease by feeding chondroitin sulfate. An experiment with that George Mann had done in monkeys that was also echoed in numerous other species showing that if you fed any type of sulfur that was an essential form of sulfur so as long as it as long as it was one of the nutritionally required forms of sulfur it would basically abolish the hypercholesterolemia that you would get from cholesterol feeding and so john wants to know you know, on the one hand, what do I think about statins? He's kind of worried to take them given what he's read. And then on the other hand, what do I think about how safe and effective sulfur or chondroitin sulfate might be in the prevention of heart disease? So <clears throat> after giving that background, John phrases his first question as, is there any reason...
Is there anything to contradict the apparent message that statins do not reduce all-cause mortality, even if they may assist with someone diagnosed with cardiovascular disease in particular? Yes, absolutely there is. So, you know, if you just go to the Cochrane Library's 2013 systematic review statins for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, this is the pooled results of all the trials done for primary prevention, which means these are people who don't have established heart disease, although they might, you know, have undiagnosed heart disease. These are there's a population of people that have not been diagnosed with having cardiovascular disease. And it shows that the pooled results show decreased all-cause mortality. So, uh, you know, the author's conclusions are reductions in all-cause mortality, major vascular events, and revascularizations were found with no excess of adverse events among people without evidence of CVD treated with statins. And if you go to their results, in the abstract, they say all-cause mortality was reduced by statins uh, by 14%, as was combined fatal and non-fatal CVD, combined fatal and non-fatal CHD events, and combined fatal and non-fatal stroke. Redu uh, evidence available to date showed that primary prevention with statins is likely to be a cost-effective, is likely to be cost-effective and may improve patient quality of life. Recent findings from the, uh, well, Okay, so that's that's the gist of it. So you got a 14% reduction in all-cause mortality with the pooled results of all the primary prevention trials, which are the which are the that's the weak set of data, right? The the stronger set of data for statins is is in secondary prevention where you know someone has heart disease, can you can you stop them from getting another heart attack? That's where the strong data is. So the weak data set is primary prevention and that shows a 14% decrease in all-cause mortality. Now, it's not to say that you there's no criticism of this. So if I just keyword uh, search for industry, I come to the point where they say all but one of the trials had some form of ph pharmaceutical industry sponsorship. It is now established that published pharmaceutical industry sponsored trials are more likely than non-industry sponsored trials to report results and conclusions that favor drug over placebo over placebo due to biased reporting and or inter interpretation of the trial results. The reporting of adverse events in these trials is generally poor, with failure to provide details of severity and type of adverse events or to report on health-related quality of life. So, and then they go on to say why, despite that, we still trust our findings. But you see they've basically undermined them there by saying that all of these trials, except for one, are funded by industry, which we know means that they're inaccurate, both in favoring the drug over the placebo due to biased reporting or interpretation. And also, although these seem to have a very low risk of adverse events, the reporting of adverse events in these trials was poor with failure to provide details. And, you know, so so basically none of the results can be trusted. So I think that is, you know, that's very interesting when you go to the paper by Langs, Joan, and, and colleagues that John had uh, had linked to, because there's a a graph I want to show you in here. Let me just pull it up. So they have a a fascinating graph 
of the trials before and after 2004 when the European Union had made it, had basically made stricter regulations to penalize conflicts of interests. So let me share my screen and go straight to this graph. So on the left, on the left is all the trials before the EU started penalizing conflicts of interest in that 2004 re regulation. And on the right is all the ones afterwards. And what you're seeing here is LDL cholesterol levels plot on the bottom and coronary artery events is plotted on the top. So as you, if, if the arrow is pointing up, it means, and it's, it's weird because we're reading, used to reading left to right and all these arrows are pointing left from, from right to left. But, um, and that's because they're, LDL cholesterol is, on the, is plotted on the horizontal axis. So it's they're all pointing to the left because all the statin trials reduced cholesterol. So that's why they're all pointing to the left. So if the arrow is pointing up, it means coronary artery events increased by statins. If the arrow is pointing down, it means coronary artery events decreased because of statins. And all the arrows point left because statins reduced cholesterol, which makes the arrow point left. If the arrow was pointing right, it would mean statins increased cholesterol, but that didn't happen in any of these trials. So on the left, what you can see is uh, the dark blue represents secondary prevention, which is prevention of future heart disease in someone who already has it. So you got a heart attack once, let's see if we can prevent you from getting another one. Primary prevention is let's see if we can prevent heart attacks in people that we don't know have heart disease who presumably have never had heart had a heart attack or at least didn't know it and it wasn't documented anywhere and and that's the light green color on towards the bottom and this this first upper red dotted line is basically showing you the pooled results of all the of all the secondary prevention trials and this uh second red line red dotted line is showing you the pooled results of all the primary prevention trials so secondary prevention is the strong data that are showing a steep decline in heart disease risk. You know, a lot, that is proportion, roughly proportional to the degree to which you're going leftward on the graph. Uh, so they're decreasing cholesterol and they're decreasing coronary artery disease and they're doing it very strongly. In primary prevention, this is a weaker data set because we don't know that these people have heart disease, so we have a larger number to needed to treat, meaning we have a larger number of people that need to take a statin in order to present one, prevent one from getting heart disease. And the dot, dotted red lines, it's still showing a decrease in heart disease, but it is the slope of this line is much more shallow than the primary prevention line. So as you would expect, right? Because Primary prevention means some of these people are are at risk of the thing you're trying to treat. Uh, secondary prevention means all of them are. So of course you're going to get stronger results when everyone is handpicked to be the type of thing that you're trying to prevent, rather than just picking a bunch of people on the street and some of them are. Right. But what's interesting though is when you go over to the right, this is all the trials that were done after the EU started penalizing conflicts of interest. And so basically the conflicts of interest went dramatically down in these trials. And I don't know that that's 
that you can say that's the only thing that happened. But it's interesting that the pooled result, there's no dotted red line here because the pooled results show that they didn't do anything to heart disease risk. And if you look at the individual arrows, you see some increased heart disease risk like this one and this one, some decreased like this one. But the decreases are really shallow and a couple, you know, the the two of the increases are kind of steep. One of the increases is kind of shallow. And the end result is that there's no there's no pool statistically significant pooled effect on heart disease risk. Now, you know, part of part of the issue is that they did all the primary prevention ones that they wanted to do at the beginning. Then they moved on to secondary prevention. So here, I think you're dealing with like special populations of secondary prevention. Like let's take people with type 2 diabetes and do it, right? So it's the populations aren't exactly the same. Um, and so you, you can't say like it's because they re- they got strict on conflict of interest that you, we know that's why they stopped finding good results, you know, but it looks highly suspicious, right? And so this this is separated by by conflicts of interest, not by industry funding. So I, I believe that most of these still have industry funding. Um, but I didn't I didn't look at all the individual trials. So I, I think in a broad, you know, in a broad overview, I think the statin trial evidence in pooled together looks very favorable to statins, but there's good reasons to think that when you remove the conflicts of interest and industry funding, you're what you're left with a much less impressive result. Now, this argument that statins increase calcification and and heart disease risk, I, I kind of view it as look, let's back up and think about what what are the causative mechanisms of heart disease? And if we want to make it simple, it's oxidation of lipoproteins in the subendothelial space, which is behind the inner lining of the blood vessel wall, leading to an immune response that gobbles those up to prevent the toxicity of the oxidized lipids from causing harm to the blood vessel wall. That creates a plaque. Those plaques need to be stabilized by collagen. But a larger degree of lipid, oxidized lipid accumulation and inflammation in the plaque will destabilize the collagen. Collagen synthesis will stabilize the collagen. And microcalcifications, calcium deposits that are very tiny, in that are not visualizable on a, calci- a coronary calcium scan, that are too small to be visualized in a coronary calcium scan, those destabilize the plaque and make it more likely to rupture. When the plaque ruptures, that's when you get a cardiovascular event, usually. And there are there are nuances to that, but that's the general gist of what's usually happening in a cardiovascular, in an ischemic cardiovascular event. So if you think about this, anything that you do, and then I should say, then the, you know, in the event, the blood supply to the heart's blocked off in a in a myocardial infarction because you could have similar things going on in a stroke uh in an ischemic stroke but let's take a a coronary um a myocardial infarction due to a coronary thrombus so you have a blood clot that's blocking a coronary artery and it's cutting off the blood supply to the heart and then you have hypoxia in the heart that causes the tissue to die because the hypoxia is compromising the metabolism at the level of the mitochondria. 
So statins, they decrease cholesterol synthesis in the liver and increase the LDL receptor, which takes lipoproteins out of the blood fast at a, at a rate that will prevent those lipoproteins from oxidizing and contributing to plaque development. But statins also decrease the synthesis of coenzyme Q10, which is toxic to mitochondria, and they also decrease the synthesis of vitamin of uh, the metaquinone 4 type of vitamin K2, which is needed to prevent calcifications in the arteries. And so statins obviously are capable of decreasing heart disease risk and increasing heart disease risk based on the balance of mechanisms of whether you have done more to prevent the oxidation of lipids by increasing their uptake into the liver versus have done more to promote calcification by hurting uh, MK, MK4 synthesis or worsen the state of the mitochondria, which you know, even in the classical ischemic myocardial infarction, if you have less resilient mitochondria, you're way more likely to get death of the heart tissue or to die because the the key difference between life and death of the cell of the tissue and of you is all about whether you can keep the mitochondrial respiration in the heart tissue going long enough during this period where the blood supply has been cut off. You know, so of course statins can decrease heart disease and increase heart disease. That's just straightforward. The question is, you know, what's the balance and you know, do you judge the probability for yourself based on the trials? Or do you try to adjust the trial results based on what you think they would have shown if they were all free of conflicts of interest? I mean, you could do that, but I think of it much more differently because I think if I'm myself trying to make the decision for myself, I'm not concerned with the population level results in observational studies or the populations of the trials I'm interested in, is this the best choice that I can make for myself? So me personally, my cholesterol has always run low. And so I'm probably not going to be, ever be faced with this decision. You know, but if my cholesterol were running high, I would think, is, are there other things that I can do and you know, that have a better cost-benefit profile? Because if I can maintain robust vitamin K and CoQ10 status, and I can maintain robust mitochondrial health, and I can also ma- maintain healthy blood lipids, then I have the best of all those worlds, right? And so I I think that that brings us to John's, the second part of John's question, which is what about doing this with chondroitin sulfate? And so he links to a study from Lester Morrison, who had 120 patients with ischemic heart disease randomly divided into two groups of 60. I don't know how, it wasn't really clear whether they were randomizing in the modern sense when I read that paper, but you know, split into two groups of 60. Mortality over 2.5 years for the control group was higher than the group treated with chondroitin sulfate at 1,500 milligrams daily after initial higher dose. Non-fatal events seem to be very much higher in the control group. And, uh, you know, if we just go to the abstract there, they've got 21 people in the control group had acute cardiac episodes or myocardial ischemia, four deaths. And in the in the treatment group with the chondroitin sulfate, there were 
there were five deaths. Oh, so here we go. This this didn't decrease all cause mortality either. It increased it by twenty percent. If you if you want to play with if you want to do ball with these uh, small numbers, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, to me, this is no difference in the deaths. The deaths are too small in number. Um, but the where's the coron- so um, in the treatment group. There were seven times, so there were seven times as many. Uh, oh, I see. Okay, there were three cases of coronary episodes in the treatment group. So they seven he lost remorse and sevenfold decreased the risk of coronary episodes over two and a half years among 120 ischemic heart disease patients with 1,500 milligrams of chondroitin sulfate. Uh, although for a brief period at the beginning, they were fed 10 grams of chondroitin sulfate. So in that paper, I, I mean, to me, it sounds like he mentions antithrombotic effects of this at first, but then he goes on to interpret it mostly as a hypocholesterolemic effect. And if you go to George Mann's study, Mann basically showed that in monkeys, and this was repeated in several other species, that you could do this with methionine and you could do this with cysteine and you could do this with taurine and it you know and and that would no matter which form of nutritionally important sulfur you fed you're getting this dramatic decrease in cholesterol levels you're basically abolishing the ability of cholesterol feeding to cause high cholesterol so why would that do that well Based on my reading of the research, I think there are two mechanisms. So one that was familiar to George Mann was that most of these sulfur products are metabolized into taurine, and taurine will increase bile acid salt formation, which will increase the degree to which your bile acids leave the liver as bile salts and go to the intestines. And so because the bile acids in the liver decline and because cholesterol is turned into bile acids, the liver will start turning more cholesterol into bile acids and that will use up the cholesterol. And because the cholesterol in the liver drops, then the liver will increase its expression of the LDL receptor and take in more cholesterol from the blood, in the form, take in LDL particles from the blood. And, you know, that's that's sort of like very similar to what cholesterol and I think what fibrates were doing, which were pre-statin cholesterol lowering drugs, where your you know, cholesterol is like this gum that binds up your bile in your intestines and makes you excrete it in the feces so they don't get reabsorbed. And the same process happens. It's all from reducing bile acids in the liver. There's another mechanism that I I think that George Mann wasn't aware of at that time because it took us decades to map out all the lipoprotein metabolism, but heparin sulfate proteoglycans on the liver will take up any ApoE-containing lipoproteins in addition to the LDL receptor taking up ApoB-containing lipoproteins. And when you eat a meal, your chylomicrons, which are the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins that go from your intestines to your lymph to your blood are the main APOE-containing lipoprotein. However, six hours after a meal, 
they're largely metabolized into LDL particles that contain APOE. So if you, if you improve your heparin sulfate amount concentration on the surface of the liver, you'll take up chylomicrons faster and prevent them from being metabolized into LDL particles. And then you'll also more quickly take up the postprandial six-hour out LDL particles that have been metabolized from chylomicrons. And so you're overall reducing the, you're certainly going to reduce like a lot of the postprandial cholesterol in the blood in that way. So I think those two things are what's going on. Now, the question is, you know, do you need to to, uh, use chondroitin sulfate to do that? I don't think so. I mean, first of all, remember your key performance indicator here, your KPI is your blood cholesterol levels, right? Because everyone, George Mann and Lester Morrison, were both assuming that you're doing this to lower cholesterol levels, which will lower heart disease risk. Now, I think because of experiments that were done later, that it's all about oxidation of lipoproteins, but it doesn't matter. If you stimulate the liver's uptake of these lipoproteins, you will prevent them from oxidizing the subendothelial space. And so what George Mann showed was that you don't need chondroitin. You can use any sulfur amino acid. You can use taurine, methionine, cysteine, et cetera. So to me, and he's doing this in, you know, he showed that you had to be deficient in these to, to use cholesterol feeding to increase cholesterol levels in these animals. So he's correcting a deficiency. So... I don't think there's good data showing that chondroitin sulfate is toxic or is harmful. However, there is stu- there are studies suggesting that its bioavailability, its absorption from the, from the gut might be as low as 12%. And it and no one thinks that it's that it's really high, right? But there's controversy over whether it's really low or whether it's, you know, 60, 70%. If you don't absorb it from the gut, it's left over to be metabolized by gut bacteria. And I know some people know they have a problem with sulfur metabolizing bacteria, but I think many more people have some in the gut. And they're not going to have a problem until they start pounding the gut with sulfur components that are poorly absorbed in the small intestine. And so I think that there is some risk that you negatively alter your gut microbiota by taking... 1500 milligrams of chondroitin sulfate forever until you, you know, for the next 40 years. Um, and so I would much rather get that sulfur requirement from protein, which is how you usually get sulfur. And this is just my opinion. I can't justify it with heart disease trials, but I, I believe that if you shoot to meet your total protein of 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight with the predominance of that being from animal protein, you'll get all the sulfate that you need, providing that you have vitamin B6 and iron and all the other things that you need to go down the the sulfur metabolizing pathway. And so that's my opinion. I, I think chondroitin sulfate is probably is probably safe and it probably works. But if it's working, you know by your cholesterol levels, but you could probably achieve the same thing with less risk to altering the gut microbiome by meeting your protein requirement for, you know, for what we would nowadays say is good for healthy body composition, 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight. And doing that with the bulk of it being from animal proteins that 
provide you with all the sulfur amino acids and therefore all the sulfate that you're going to need. All right. Thank you, John, for your question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a Masterpass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.